Advent is marked by a spirit of expectation, of anticipation, of preparation, of longing. There's a yearning for deliverance from the evils of the world, first expressed by Israelite slaves in Egypt as they cried out from their bitter oppression. Is the cry of those who've experienced the tyranny of injustice in a world under the curse of sin, and yet who have hope of deliverance by a God who's heard the cries of oppressed slaves and brought deliverance. It is that hope, however faint at times, and that God, however distant he sometimes seems, which brings to the world the anticipation of a king who will rule with truth and justice and righteousness over his people and in his creation. It is that hope that once anticipated and now anticipates anew the reign of an anointed one, a Messiah who will bring peace and justice and righteousness to the world. This morning we light the third candle. The first candle, anybody remember what our first candle was? The candle of hope. Then last week we lit a second candle. Candle of preparation. This morning, if you'll stand with me, and together, let's read. We light this candle because we celebrate the birth of Jesus, Messiah, the Lord, our Savior in Bethlehem. We rejoice in God's work of redemption bringing yesterday, continuing today, and reaching fulfillment on an ever closer tomorrow. Dear God, as we light this candle, we rejoice. We join the celebration of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. We know his work is moving toward completion. Even so, though the story isn't over, we rejoice in our hope. We wait for you rejoicing. Amen. Please be seated. Last week I shared about my great-great-uncle, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was studying uh, music in Germany. He was a composer. And uh, his family needed him to come home because they were running out of money. And so he told his family, uh, well, I know I have to come home, but I'm going to go by Palestine on the way home because it won't cost any more. And he said this, you know, why shouldn't I visit? I mean, if my name is Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you know, I'm destined to visit uh, Jerusalem. Then I just thought about, you know, that's kind of, that's a great way of kind of thinking about your destiny. My name is Scott. That means I should sometime in my lifetime visit Scotland. (laughs) It makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? You know, and then Chernagel, obviously I should visit Chernagel, Norway, yes. I mean, that's an obvious. So, what, I mean, uh, what are, like, where would you like to go based upon where your name, what your name is? Germany, yeah? Heinemeyer, that's pretty German. Okay. Anybody else? Got a connection to someplace? I mean, if it worked for Nehemiah, it's got to work for us, right? Mary Ann, okay. 
and look and look where you go. I went to you did go to Scotland for me. I don't think that quite counts. <laughs> True, we share that. So can I? I have just been intrigued that my great great uncle would spend Christmas in Bethlehem in 1894. Uh, he he wrote about his night there and his visit to Shepherd's Field. I'm going to read you a little bit out of his biography. Nehemiah remained in the Church of the Nativity that was also built by Emperor Constantine in the cavern where Jesus was born for the rest of Christmas Eve, emerging at the dawn of Christmas Day. There were services in the church without interruption Christmas Eve and all through the night till Christmas morning. The church was crowded with people the Catholic services were very impressive, and the music was grand. At about three o'clock in the morning, a little Arab boy offered me a chair. The offer was most welcome, for I'd stood nearly all the night and was very tired. I rested my head on the hand of my umbrella, which I had planted between the knees of the sleepers on the floor, and before I was aware of it, the soft music echoing through the church had lulled me to sleep. Awaking suddenly at four o'clock in the morning, he remembered his determination to visit the field of the shepherds. While it was yet night, he hired an Arab to show him the way to the field, about a 15-minute walk from Bethlehem. As we stood in the place where it is believed the angels brought the heavenly message, looking upward, I thought that I could almost see the glorious vision the, angel, the shepherds saw and hear the wonderful words of the angels, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I was entirely alone on the spot with the exception of my Arab guide. The night was without a sound, and it seemed to me filled with a certain fragrance, fragrance pervaded, as it were, with sweet holiness from above. This was one of the most inspiring portions of my trip. As Christmas Day dawned and the purple streaks of dawn commenced brightening up the landscape, Nehemiah made the two-hour walk back to Jerusalem. You know, he writes about visiting Shepherd's Field, and for those of us that have been in Bethlehem, he's writing about going outside of the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem at the time he visited was only 8,000 people. And so Shepherd's Field was a 15-minute walk outside of the city. And there he stood, and again, he, these words really have captured just my imagination where I stood in this place where it's believed the angels brought the heavenly message. Looking upward, I thought I could almost see the glorious vision the shepherds saw and hear the wonderful words of the angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. I was entirely alone on the spot with the exception of my Arab guide. The night was without a sound and it seemed to me filled with a certain fragrance pervaded as it were, with sweet holiness from above. From that inspiring night of my great-great-uncle, I just want to say this is my prayer for us. As we, see, as we share in this time today, and as we share in this season, may we see the glorious vision. May we hear the wonderful words. May we even smell the fragrance of sweet holiness. In those days, 
Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks at night during the night watch. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel and praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. In those days, what I've been trying to help us as a community do is back up into those days. In so many ways, it's easy for us to, to kind of read our experience or our understanding, or our theology back into this day. And we make it our day, but it wasn't their day. And so I've just been trying to find, okay, what was it like in those days? One of the things that I've read you, and I'm going to read it again, is that messianic expectation reached a fever point. (laughs) It was a point of breaking out. It was distinct from all of the history of Judaism. In in like the final hour before Jesus was born, there was this, this expectation of Messiah coming. Out of the Jewish encyclopedia, not until the fall of the Maccabean dynasty, when the despotic government of Herod the Great and his family and the increasing tyranny of the Roman Empire had made their condition even more unbearable, did the Jews seek refuge in the hope of a personal Messiah. They yearned for the promised Redeemer of the house of David who would free them from the yoke of the hated foreign usurper, would put an end to the impious Roman rule, and would establish his own reign of peace and justice in its place. In this way, their hopes became gradually centered in the Messiah. See, it would be easy for me, with my understanding of the Messiah and my reading of the New Testament, it would be easy for me to read back into Jewish history that they were always anticipating Messiah. The truth is, history does not teach us that. The truth is that history brought the Jews through subsequent oppressions. Notice, just just a quick review of Israeli history when they disobeyed the covenant of God, they were taken captivity. It started with the Assyrians. That's 700 years before Jesus. A foreign power came. It was followed by the Babylonians around 600. And that was followed by the Persians. And that was followed by Alexander the Great. And that was followed by the Seleucids. As as Alexander's kingdom was divided, a fourth of his kingdom, the Seleucids, they they were the oppressors over the land of Israel. 
and it finally came down to the Romans. What this quote is telling us is that through 700 years of foreign occupation, of a rule that's not God, of a nation, Israel, that is not free, for 700 years, they didn't have at the front of their list a hope in Messiah. But beginning in 63 B.C., to 37 B.C., so 60 to 40 years before Jesus was born, all of a sudden, what came to the forefront for the Jew living in the land was, we need a Messiah. In those days, it just so happened in those days, as history was unfolding itself, as a people with a document that talked about Messiah began to see, oh, we really need Messiah to come. It's during the Seleucid Empire. There's this brief period called the Maccabees where, where, where Israel began to restore itself. It was quickly doused when the Roman Empire came in, defeated the Seleucids. And then the Hasmonean rule is changed over by the Herodian rule, and then things just fell apart. And so that's where you come back to this quote. It's during that time the Romans are here. Herod the Great, a Jew, in cahoots with the Roman Empire, not representing the God of Israel at all. We need a Messiah to come in those days. Another thing about those days is what's called the Roman Imperial Cultus. In the Hellenistic ruler cult, the Lord became part of the official title of kings and divine honors were accorded them. This development brought its strongest expression in the Roman imperial cultus. The title, Savior of the Inhabited World, was first applied to Caesar. An inscription hails Augustus, the same Augustus that called for the census. A savior for us. The idea of the emperor as a benefactor was linked with that of the golden age of peace, order, and prosperity inaugurated by his beneficent rule. In those days... When the Jew is finally crying out, Oh God, we need Messiah to come to free us from tyranny. In those days, when the Roman empires are being called Savior of the world, in those days, it just so happened, in those days, there's a birth announcement to shepherds outside of Bethlehem in the middle of the night. I bring you good news which will cause great joy for all the people. These people who are suffering under the tyranny of Roman rule and the rule of Herod the Great. These people who are hearing with their own ears Roman emperors 
and Herod the king called Lord or Savior. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior. A Savior has been born to you. And that Savior is not the Roman emperor. That Savior is not a king of Israel. That Savior is Messiah. That Savior is the true Lord. And this will be a sign for you shepherds. You shepherds will find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, rags, and he'll be lying in a manger. He'll be lying in a structure that's a stable for animals. Before they run into Bethlehem to see where that baby is, the, the, the army shows up. Literally, it's the heavenly army. The heavenly host is the army of heaven. The skies fill with thousands upon thousands of heavenly soldiers. And there is this sound which I can't even imagine what it would have sounded like. Glory. Glory to God in highest heaven. And connecting highest heaven and the glory of God with earth and on earth. Peace. Not the peace of the Roman Empire. Not the peace of an emperor who's, who is a benefactor. Not the peace of a king. But the peace of the Messianic age. The peace of Messianic salvation to those upon whom his favor rests. And obviously his favor was resting upon those shepherds and those people on that day. The point of this is this. N.T. Wright summarizes it great. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God in all of its apparent weakness, insignificance, and vulnerability in the kingdoms of this world. My friends, that's exactly what it is today. The kingdom of God has arrived. It arrived with Jesus, and it is arriving, and it will finally arrive in a, in a day that's ever closer, but it's not today. And that kingdom seems very weak, and that kingdom seems very insignificant, and that kingdom seems very vulnerable, and that kingdom confronts the kingdoms of this world, including our own nation. There is no nation on the earth that does not run into conflict with the kingdom of God. It includes the nation of Israel. They're in conflict with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what brings the true Savior, the King, the true Messiah. It's the kingdom of God that brings the true age of peace, the prosperity the wholeness that all of us long for. So there's some things through this passage for you and me to think about. Number one, I think that we should always, 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 always remember that our God acts in history. Bam! Suddenly. When we least expect it. 
700 years. And in those 700 years, down to the last 60 years, a people that have a heritage of God, who have the revelation, the books of God, the voice of God, walking with God, all of that, all of that. And they are crying out, finally, oh God, we finally get it. We can't save ourselves. The governments of this world can't save us. There's only one Messiah. Oh, come, deliver us. And after 700 years, God acts. Suddenly, twice in this paragraph, there's this suddenness. The shepherds are going about their business suddenly. Unexpectedly, there's an angel. What? The angel gives the birth announcement. Suddenly the, the, whole, the sky opens up and the army of heaven shows up. Our God acts in a moment. And we, can, we cannot lose sight of that. And we may live as they live for hundreds of years in agony, in tyranny, recognizing this ain't it. But the day comes when, bam, our God suddenly acts. And He knows. And it can be any moment. And He does, he does act unexpectedly. Our friends, who we, we, who we I mean, we, we, we hold a great, we're, we're indebted to the Jewish people. They receive the revelation of God. They have the history that goes way beyond our history with God. We never lose sight of that. But sadly, in those 60 years, as they develop this anticipation and expectation, Messiah's got to come. Messiah's got to rid us of the Romans. Messiah's got to clean up our own monarchy with Herod. When he came, they did not recognize him because he came in an unexpected way. What kind of kingdom shows up in a stable with poor parents? What kind of king shows up like that? It's a king that wants to relate with all of his humanity. I'm going to start at the bottom because if I start at the bottom, all of humanity will recognize that I love them. If I come in at the top, it doesn't work the same way. And the Jews have missed that. What the Jew anticipated, I, I wrote a, a, a quote in my notes and I didn't copy it, but basically, because after the birth of Jesus, the Messianic kingdom didn't show up, the Romans didn't go away, Herod the Great was not, that, that dynasty wasn't renewed, there wasn't, there wasn't the rule of justice, then, then Jesus is dismissed as not the Messiah. But he did something unexpected. He came at first. Why? Why is, there a, why is there a separation between the first coming and the second coming? Why did he do that? That's a surprise. God did something unexpected. Why? Why did he do that? Because of what? 
I, I, think, I mean, I don't know of any other explanation yet. The message had to get to all the nations, not just one. And our God wants everybody saved. And so he's delayed so that the message, the one we're reading about today, a Savior has come, a Messiah has come, the King of all kings has shown up on the planet. You can now relate to him because he became just like you. For that message to get around to all the nations, for, for however that would satisfy the God that wants us all back, I don't know any other reason why he would do that. So he acts unexpectedly. We can't script if we can't script what it was like for the first coming, guess what? We can't script the second. So let's not try doing that. And let us, let us be sure. Let us be clear. Let's be absolutely, absolutely clear. There is but one Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. And as that Savior, that Deliverer, he will deliver us from ourselves. As good, as well, as, as hard as we try to govern ourselves, whether that is me governing myself, me trying to govern my marriage, us trying to govern our family, us governing the, a local church, our city, our state, our nation, there is no perfect government other than the kingdom of God. Government will never save us. There won't be, like the next election isn't going to give us the Savior. It's not going to happen. E even though we have a wonderful heritage, the Jews had a better heritage. Jesus. We cannot lose focus on Jesus. His is the kingdom. His is the rule. His is the power. His is the glory. And he does not share that with any government on the earth. He's it. And I think what he is longing for, he is longing for his people to finally get it. And we have no substitutes for his rule, for his power, and for his glory. I think when the day comes that his people on the earth finally get it, there's only one. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. That will be a better day on planet earth. My friends, messianic salvation on the earth. All of humanity free of tyranny. All of humanity free of poverty. All of humanity free of disease and sickness. All of humanity enjoying prosperity, wholeness because of Messiah. That turned the lights on in heaven. Glory, the brilliance of heaven, the splendor of heaven is connected with the messianic salvation on this earth. Again, it's a reminder, we're not going to the heavenlies. The heavenlies have illuminated here. This is the place that's been illuminated by heaven. The new heaven and the new earth come here. We don't go there.
And what, what really turns on the lights, what turns on the brilliance, the brightness, glory to God in the highest, when there is peace on earth among people. And that peace is the recognition of Messiah and his rule on his planet. What do we do with that? The only thing that I can bring us to is a time of reflection where we recognize how easy it is that we can put a substitute for kingdom, power, and glory. We all have a tendency to substitute ourselves or someone else into kingdom and power and glory. So would you stand with me? Can we just have a little time of reflection? Our Father, Almighty God, At just the right time, you sent Jesus. At a time where your people on the earth finally were crying out for Messiah, Messiah came. At a time when human beings, your creatures, begin to declare themselves Savior and Lord, you sent the true Savior, the Lord. Lord, as we have shared this time and we've shared this this story, it seems that the thing that you're asking of us is that we would acknowledge together that yours is the kingdom and there is none other. Yours is the power and there is none other. And yours is the glory and there is none other. So what I'd ask, Holy Spirit, is that in this kingdom moment that you would bring illumination to us. Show us whose kingdom we serve. Show us what power turns us on. Show us whose glory we really seek. I ask that you turn us into a people who are so influenced by your rule and your reign that as a community of people each and every day we say, oh God, our King, do through us today what you want to do. Forget about our agenda. Forget about our to-do list. What do you want? What do you want on the earth today? And that as you rule and reign among us, you would receive all the glory. Because whatever you ask us to do, it's done in your power, by your authority, not our own. 
Show us, Lord, what we substitute for your kingdom, your power, and your glory. And bring us, Lord, to that place of repentance, of change, of courage to say, Oh, Lord, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And it's only yours. Thank you for this message, this event that is the source of great joy for all people, for all time. In your name, amen.